Today is a special day in the life of the church. Today is a special day because tomorrow, almost 500 years ago tomorrow, a devout and yet conflicted monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. At a time without cell phones, without texting, the World Wide Web, or even the Postal Service, Luther's ideas spread exponentially farther and faster than he could have ever expected. And this was thanks in part to Johann Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. Through the printing press, Luther's topics for conversation, that's what these 95 theses were, topics to talk about, they went viral. The conversation that began that day would eventually transform the religious, political, and social landscape of not just a continent, but the known world itself. And today is Reformation Sunday. If you're not from a Lutheran background, you're like, huh? Today is Reformation Sunday when we have an annual time in the context of worship to reflect on the conversation that Luther started as well as to reflect on why he felt that dialogue was worth having in the first place. Reformation Day is sort of like the church's New Year's Day. It's a time for resolutions. It's a reminder of our need for reforming our lives and for being continually reformed as the church. And the theme of Reformation is in many ways at the heart of Exodus 33, which we're looking at this morning. To set the stage for you again, the fallout from the golden calf still lingers. The loud and Unrestrained cries of self-worship have given way to the palatable and awkward sound of silence. God's personally written copy of the mutual covenant with his people remains in pieces at the foot of the mountain. Plans for the tabernacle, a dwelling place for the Lord to be among his people have been scrapped. The air is thick with tension. Despite all the repentance, all the cleansing, all the intercessory work of Moses, reconciliation between God and his people is by no means complete. Sin has caused distance in the relationships to the point of a stalemate. It truly is a where do we go from here moment. And as we come to Exodus 33, we find out where do we go from here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. 
As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It doesn't take much in what we've looked at to see the repeated theme in this chapter. The repeated theme in Exodus 33, both positively and negatively, is the presence of God. Things are so strained that Yahweh has moved out. God has left his own mountain, choosing instead to relocate outside the camp. And the Lord's relocation communicates his strong displeasure as well as how far away his people have strayed in their relationship to him. And that's the point, really. Because many of us can, can relate to this experience. Maybe we're in that place now, we've been before, where God seems distant in our lives. The point here is that when God seems distant in our lives, we need to step back. We need to realize that we are often the ones who made the first move. If you want to go off on your own, this God doesn't require that you lean on him. If you want to move forward, assuming your own self-sufficiency, moving ahead without the Lord's presence or approval, this God will let you do so. If we insist on going forward every day of our lives in our own strength rather than his, so be it. Yes, this God will pursue us. But this God will not force himself upon us. Yes, this God will not give up on us. But this Lord at the same time will give us the space that we demand. You remember another story that relates to this idea. Jesus had a rich young ruler who came to him. Who came to him asking the question of how do I receive eternal life? And you remember, it's worded so poignantly in the Gospels, that as Jesus answered him, the man was downcast and walked away. The scripture there is clear. Jesus looked upon the man and loved him, but he let the man walk away. He gave him the space. He let him go. Beloved, when God seems distant in our lives, maybe the problem is we are content. Maybe the problem is that we're willing to admire God from a distance. 
Many people struggle. We talk lament in the church about what's happening to the church. We're persecuted as the body of Christ. Where is God in the midst of all that's happening? We lament this out loud, and yet at the same time, I find that much, much of Christianity is content to talk about God rather than to seek to know him face to face. Many of us say that we know our Bibles proudly. And what, ha what is happening when people don't know the word of God? And we lament that we know our Bibles. And yet, at the same time, within the church as the body of Christ, we fail to cultivate the presence of God in our lives. Beloved, what we see right here from the outset is that we dare not take God's presence for granted. Not take it for granted in our lives. Because knowing all the words of Scripture, memorizing Scripture is valuable. But knowing all the words of Scripture, knowing all the stories of the Bible, isn't the same thing as knowing and engaging the person of God. And so the Lord plans to send the Israelites to the promised land on their own. He will keep his promises to his people, but he will not be going with them. Why? Why is God withdrawing his presence from his people? How is this not a punishment? I mean, okay, it's all well and good. It's all well and good that God gives us space. But, but go with me on this. It's all well and good that God gives us space. But given that the Lord knows, he tells Moses, he knows that, that the people are stiff-necked. Given that God tells Moses that he not only saw their outward behavior, but that God also says he knows their hearts that they're inclined to perpetual stubbornness and rebellion. Given that God knows this, shouldn't God press a little harder? Maybe violate our free will a little bit? I mean, wouldn't we say, wouldn't we say that pulling away from someone when you know they can't help themselves is a form of punishment? Why is God pulling away? Is God's withdrawal of his presence a punishment? Or is it a protection? Once again, here we, we learn that with this God, and I've said this before, but we see it again. With this God, it's all or nothing. It's everything or it's nothing. The Israelites lose God's presence because you can't have God's presence your way. God doesn't operate on your terms. God doesn't operate on my terms. God operates on his terms. We engage him only through the terms he proposes. And we engage him only through the way in which he himself accomplishes those purposes for us. You know, this passage reminded me of a story that many of us are familiar with. If we haven't read it, we probably saw the movie. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books about the Chronicles of Narnia. And the lion, which in the wardrobe, you know in, the, in this series of stories, there's Aslan, the lion, which is meant to make us think of Jesus Christ, to think of God. And in the lion, which in the wardrobe, there's an exchange where some of the characters in the story are a little bit concerned and not know what to make of this lion, because after all, it's a lion. And they ask this very profound question. Well, is Aslan, is this lion safe? And the other character says, you know, quite simply, safe. He's a lion. He isn't safe. But he's good. Beloved, we see here in Exodus 33 once again that our God is not safe. Our God is not safe. Our God here and elsewhere is a consuming fire. If I were to be with you for a moment and you're anything less than all in, if you're not about everything, then I'm going to consume you. You won't survive. It's not safe. But this God is good. Good. 
Our God is a consuming fire because this God purposes to change our lives. This God purposes to transform our lives. And it's that kind of change, that kind of change costs something. That kind of change is the kind of change that Jesus said bids a man to come and die to himself. Do you see the irony here? Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic that the Israelites lost God's presence precisely because they tried to get his presence the wrong way? They wanted something. They wanted something. They wanted God, but they wanted a tangible experience of the presence of God. So they said, make us a cow. But in their rebellion, they lost the presence of God. They had everything. And they gave it away for nothing. Israel wasn't ready to make that kind of commitment. Israel wasn't ready to face that kind of change that God's presence brings into our lives. So rather than risk breaking his promise, Yahweh stay, would stay at Sinai, Mount Sinai, and would send the people out of his presence for their protection. All the blessings, but not the presence. My brothers and sisters, Israel wasn't ready to make that kind of commitment. Israel wasn't ready to face the kind of change, the radical change that God's presence will bring into our lives. Well, it's reality check time. Are we ready to make that kind of commitment? Do we really want God's presence? Do we really want God's presence in our lives? If God dangled this same proposition in front of you, the same proposition that you may not have noticed that he dangles in front of the Israelites, would you take it? If God dangled the same proposition in front of you, how would you respond? If God said, I'll give you everything you want. I'll give you joy in this life. I'll give you happiness in this life. I'll give you a good marriage. I'll give you a great career. I'll give you wonderful children. I'll give you power. I'll give you glory. I'll give you influence. I'll give you a lasting legacy. I'll give you heaven in the hereafter. But you can't have my presence. Would you take it? Beloved, are we taking do we take the presence of God in our lives for granted? Is the promised land still the promised land if God is not in it? Is heaven still heaven if God is not there? We have no right to the presence of God. We have no right to the presence of God. God gives and withdraws his presence as he sees fit. And when God's presence comes into our lives, God seeks to change everything. To totally turn our world upside down. To transform our lives and our relationships. Are we willing to accept that kind of arrangement? I can only speak for myself. But when I, when I come to this revelation, this understanding, this is the kind of thing that, that brings me to my knees. This is why we take the offering in the church. We take an offering each week because this is our acknowledgement in the face of God coming into our lives of saying yes to the presence of God. We offer ourselves everything. What we're putting in the plate, what we do in, this, in these brief moments isn't everything, but it represents everything. We say to God, I'm all in. I want your presence. Take it all. 
It all belongs to you anyway. Take it and use it and transform it. And when we do this, we're not just passing around a plate. We are saying to this God, yes. I want it all. I want you. Is that what you're saying this morning when the plate comes around? I invite you as we prepare to take this offering to reflect on the questions that are there in your bulletin that will be on the screen if they're helpful to you. But reflect on what this means in our worship service when we offer ourselves. This morning at Grace, it's a fifth Sunday. And if you're not familiar in our community, we have a tradition on fifth Sundays to also acknowledge God's broader call to missions, to serve other people in other countries. And part of how we do this is by taking a second offering. And so the ushers will come forward and take the first offering, and then you'll see baskets that will go around for a second offering. This morning, the second offering that we'll be taking is for a region in eastern Africa where we have missionaries on the ground. I'm not at liberty to talk about where specifically our missionary is because this is recorded and it goes online and could jeopardize the work that they're doing. But this ministry is, that they're doing in eastern Africa is a ministry that has been labeled HEAL, acronym HEAL, you're seeing slides of this part of this work. Health education for a life. The A is the group in East Africa that I can't share with you. Health education for a life. What, what these monies are going to contribute to is the teaching and training of sanitation, pre- and postnatal care, and basic nutrition. It's a project that's going to take about two years. And you may think, well, how does this relate to the gospel? How does this re relate to Jesus? Because this, the focus of this project is to bring education and training to women in particular in small groups to, to transform their thinking and their actions related to their health and well-being because in this part of the world for these women that is very, very intimately related to their spiritual worldview, how they approach health and healing. And this is a project by which through the stories of scripture during the training times they will not only improve their physical circumstances but they'll also learn about how Jesus wants to work in their lives in matters of health and healing. So I encourage you as the plate comes around for a second offering to give as you are so led, to give generously so that we can partner for this effort in Eastern Africa. Take this time. Take this time to offer yourselves. Use the questions for reflection as they help you. Let us lay ourselves before this God who asks us to come as we are, but with all that we are.
So if we have taken God's presence for granted, how do we re-engage? How do we engage God's presence? We glean some important insights from what Israel and Moses do next. The first step to re-engage God's presence is we have to remove all pretense. We read here in Exodus 33 that when the Israelites learned that Yahweh wasn't going with them, they removed all their jewelry. They removed all their festive clothing. They stripped away, if you will, all the externals. And they got back to basics. Grieving does that to you if you let it. Grieving will do that to you if you let it. It'll get beneath the surface. And it'll make you engage the real issues. The heart of the matter and not all that other peripheral stuff. And think about it. When they first panicked, they first panicked at the, at the changes that were taking place. When they were worried, what happened to Moses? They panicked at the changes that were taking place. And at first they gave up following Moses. And the Israelites turned to their jewelry. They turned to their jewelry. They relied on their externals, the trappings of religion. Rather than facing their grief. And what was that grief? That grief was there was no going back to Egypt. That God was calling them to new places. That God was taking them through the wilderness to get to a promised land. That life wasn't going to be the same. And again, there's the irony. In their grief at first, keeping things about pretenses and on the surface, they rejected Moses. They acted as if they couldn't remember his name. They had no idea what had become of him. They spoke ill of him. And now they find themselves where their only hope of regaining the presence of God in their lives is Moses. Sometimes as the church, we struggle with change. We resist grieving too. Sometimes we as Christians can hang on to pretense also. We can keep things just on the surface. We can be content to say that being the church is just about having fun. Being the church is just about getting to know people and spending time together. Or we can keep things on the surface and say, you know what, we're happy making church simply about holding on to the proper beliefs and practices, right doctrine, right tradition, but not right relationship with God. If that's where you are in your life, if that's where we are in our lives, and if God seems distant, beloved, maybe we need to get beneath the surface. Maybe we need to remove all the pretense. Maybe it's time for the tears to come. Maybe it's time for the tears to come so that the real work of grieving can begin. Because when we remove all the pretense, when we truly grieve, you know something else? We pay attention. We pay attention. Notice here how the Israelites reorient their focus. Notice in their grieving how they physically turn their point of view, their view, their lives toward the tent of meeting that Moses has set up. Notice how their worship changed when they dropped all the pretense. They were attentive to God's presence at the tent and stopped everything to worship when God showed up. They would stand at their tents and worship when God showed up. My brothers and sisters in Christ, are we paying attention? Are we paying attention? Where is our focus? Do we notice God outside of Sunday at 
Are we sensitive to when God shows up outside of our time in this building? Does God's presence lead us to worship out there? When we remove all the pretense, when we get real, when we pay attention, we realize that God is not as distant as we once thought. When we remove all the pretense and we pay attention, we begin to see possibilities and hope that we overlooked or ignored before. Notice in the middle of his decision that's seemingly final about what will happen. The Lord still tells Moses this isn't the last word. It's so quick, you might have missed it when we read it. But God on the one hand says, okay, go, this is it. But then in the middle of that, God says to Moses, which gets repeated to the people, I will decide what to do with you. Hold on a minute, I, I thought you already decided. I will decide what to do with you. Beloved, when we engage the presence of God, we discover a God who desires to be in relationship with us. A God who is so committed to that relationship that he's willing to change his mind. Now I know when I say God changes his mind, and if you read this and even noticed God changes his mind, it starts to all of a sudden kind of mess us up. Because most of us have been raised with Western philosophy. Most of us have had Greek influences in terms of how we think about God. And so our primary understanding of God is God is unchanging and all-knowing. And in one sense, as your pastor, I don't want to take that away from you. I don't want to negate that at all. But what I do want to introduce to you, what is right in front of us, is that the biblical view of God is not so black and white. God is described here and elsewhere as much more relational than that. And we know that relationships are not static. Relationships involve risk, change, growth. I mean, forgiveness in a relationship is unnecessary and meaningless if there's no give and take, right? So while there's something to be said for an unchanging God, there is also something to be said for a, a God who is willing to change. A God who doesn't fundamentally change who he is, but a God who is willing to change to meet us where we are. Moses gets this. Moses gets that it's all about the relationship. Moses knows that a messenger, an angel, is not going to be an adequate replacement for Yahweh. He is utterly dissatisfied with this solution because without the Lord's presence, there is no hope for the future. Moses understands that the blessings of the promised land without the promiser is a curse, not a blessing. But notice that Moses doesn't attempt to bargain with God. I, I draw this to your attention because, again, this is often our default mode when our relationships break down, especially with God. We like to bargain. We like to negotiate. Lord, if you could just get me out of this fix, I will do X, Y, and Z for you. Lord, um, okay, I admit I really have had nothing to do with you lately, but if you get me out of this situation, if you could just help me out here, just do a little, you know, divine work. I'm going to get back to that business of loving you and going after you. You and me, God, together. But bargaining doesn't work. Bargaining doesn't work in any relationship. Bargaining doesn't work in our relationship with God because bargaining isn't real relationship. And when it comes to God, bargaining with God is once again trying to have God operate on our terms rather than his terms. 
But Moses doesn't bargain with God. Instead of bargaining with God, Moses wrestles with the Lord. Knowing that he enjoyed friendship with God, that he spoke to God face to face, as it's so eloquently put, as a man speaks to a friend, Moses probes the heart of Yahweh. He doesn't bargain. He probes the heart of Yahweh. He communes with God. He engages that relationship. And Moses reminds Yahweh, hey, no one can take your place. Moses implores Yahweh, given their friendship, don't withhold your heart from me. Moses confronts Yahweh with the stark reality that Yahweh's people is Israel. He appeals to the Lord's heart of forgiveness and grace and says, that's your heart, and that heart's a faithful heart, and a faithful heart can't turn its back on someone that's its own. Moses wrestles with God. He doesn't bargain. He wrestles with God. He's not content until God is intimately present in his own life. He is not content until God is intimately present in the lives of the people to whom God has called him to lead. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, as your pastor, I will settle for no less for you or for me or for us. Martin Luther said almost over nearly 500 years ago at a pivotal moment, here I stand, I can do no other. And I say the same words to you, here I stand, I can do no other. Like Moses, I understand and I need you to embrace that in the end, the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters, the only thing that sets us apart, the only thing that changes our lives, the only thing that can transform our world is resting in the presence of God. The living presence of Jesus Christ in our midst. We can accept no substitutes. Together, we must deal with all rivals and distractions. It is the only thing that matters. Beloved, if you're with me, if you're even partially there, then join me in the next part of our worship. Join me in realizing that sometimes we hold back, that sometimes we're responsible or we're blind to the things that bring distance, that make it difficult for us to engage the presence of God, that we often default into bargaining and negotiating with God rather than wrestling with this God and engaging the relationship. Together with me in a few moments of silence, open your heart. Confess to this God the places in which you're bargaining. You're negotiating. Confess the things that are making it difficult for you to engage the presence of God. And then after a few moments, We'll have this time closed out by a corporate prayer of confession that's led by one of our pastors. Let's take a moment. Close your eyes. Open your hearts to God. Let's confess together.
loving God. All our hearts are wide open to you. There's no secret we could possibly keep from you. Seeing all, knowing all, you love us. And it is from the security of your good but not safe love that we risk telling you together the ways we fall short. We confess to you now, Lord, the ways we have relied on externals. We've relied on those outward signs that we're good, that we're okay, that we're successful. We're sorry for that. We confess the ways we have allowed ourselves to be distracted lose focus to replace the things that really matter with things that don't matter much at all. We confess all the times and ways we've engaged in in foxhole prayers and bargaining prayers and negotiating prayers and even adopting that as a way of life, of coming to you in crisis, because you always welcome us, but then losing sight of you when the crisis ends. We confess all the ways we've accepted God's substitutes, seeking love and satisfaction in empty places outside of you. And all these ways, Lord, combined together work to keep you at a distance, to keep ourselves safe from your presence, your consuming, fiery presence fire of your love and mercy and desire to cleanse us and make us whole. And so, Lord, as we lay down and admit to you the ways we have kept you at a distance, we ask you to replace all of that, all of those patterns of avoidance with courageous hearts ready to wrestle with you. New minds ready to consider how big and wide and powerful you are. And spirits, God, give us spirits of flame with a desire for deeper and deeper relationship with you. The one who knows our name one who calls us by our name, the one who refuses to let us go, the one who seeks us when we wander and holds us and walks us from this life to the next. We pray all this through the 
place of coming clean. It's out of that place of knowing that God is with us, that we are forgiven, that we can stand and truly embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I invite you to do that now. Say hello. Offer the grace, love, and peace of Christ with each other. My favorite part of the worship service gets me every time. Beloved, when it comes down to it, what distinguishes us as followers of Christ? There's a game I used to play when Emma and Ethan were younger. It's a simple game, Spot the Difference. What's different? And if we were to play a little game of Spot the Difference this morning between a Christian and a non-Christian, would that, how would that go? In many ways... They, things would look very similar, wouldn't they? I mean, the Christian and the non-Christian both have two arms, two legs, one head, two ears. The Christian might wear a cross, sandals, have a beard, wear just really loud and awful t-shirts. <laughs> but we know plenty of non-Christians who also wear the same things. How about how they behave? Maybe there we might see something different. Uh, perhaps the Christian is caring. Perhaps the Christian gives money to charity. Perhaps the Christian tries to be a good person. But honestly, I know plenty of kind, charity-giving non-Christians who try to be good people too. Well, maybe it's that the Christian prays to God, reads their Bible, goes to church. I gotta tell you, I I've met a number of people who pray. A number of people who read their Bible. A number of people who go to church who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves Christians. So what is it? What is the essential difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? A follower of Christ and one who doesn't follow Christ? Well, right here in Exodus chapter 3 is the answer to this question. It's right here in verse 16. According to Moses, the only thing that distinguishes those who are God's people from those who aren't is the presence of God. If God is with you, then you belong to him. If God is not with you, then you don't. And for Moses, just in case some of us get very individualistic about hearing this, which we often do, notice for Moses, it's not enough for God to be present with me. God goes there at first. But Moses pushes back in wrestling with God. It's not enough for Moses if God is present with me. God has to be present with us. We are in this together. 
Through his intercession, Moses insists that Yahweh, without Yahweh, Israel has no reason to exist. And without the presence of the Lord with us, beloved, the church has no reason to exist. You and I who proclaim ourselves Christians have no reason to exist. And we know it's altogether possible to be religious without the Lord's presence. In fact, it's that reality that led Martin Luther to begin his own intercession for the church. Rituals, traditions, and abuses had sidetracked the church and moved her away from rather than closer to Jesus Christ. Martin Luther grew up and served in a very religious environment. But he continually felt distant from the Lord. He was tormented by the distance. He was not resting in the presence of God. He was restless. He struggled to know real friendship with God. And then he had this epiphany. This epiphany through scripture. And his breakthrough was to realize that it is impossible to enjoy God's promises. It is impossible to rest in the blessings of the church without knowing the presence of God himself. Luther's five big assertions on our banner here. By scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, glory to God alone. These five assertions was his way of echoing Moses' words in his own time. Without the presence of God, without communion with God, nothing else matters. Beloved, to rest in God's presence means that we must not take that presence for granted. We are called by a God who in his graciousness, who through Jesus Christ is still accessible to us. But like any relationship, true friendship with God needs nurturing to make the best of it. Jesus' presence is in the, his Holy Spirit inside of us, within us. The Lord doesn't hang around churches. He doesn't lie waiting around in instruments or hymnals hoping that someone will turn up on Sunday. He lives in here. He lives in our hearts. And the church is not the church if Christ is not at the center of our hearts. That's the legacy of Moses. That's the legacy of Martin Luther. That's the key to reformation. If you're a Christian today, if you're one who says, I am a follower of Christ, but I am struggling without the presence of God, hear me say this morning, hear God say this morning, it's not about if you're good enough. It's not about the forms of faith, the outward manifestations. It's all about Jesus. And if that's where you are, and even if you're not, just because it's a good practice anyway, I invite us with Moses to do what he did. Bring it all with God. Wrestle with God. And let's together pray his prayer in verse 13 when he says, Lord, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Jesus gave us a better prayer. Jesus gave us a better prayer that in the very praying of this prayer brings us into the presence of God. You know this prayer. We learned it as children. We've committed it to memory. But I want us to say it and say it in a way that invokes for us the realization that God is with us. You know it. It begins, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus also gave us this meal, this table, so that we would know that God is present with us, so that we would always know where to go to be in the presence of God. He demonstrated this in the most powerful way in giving his life on the cross, but he gave us this meal so that we could get that close to what he did on the cross. He gathered with his disciples on that last night before he was crucified and betrayed. And he took bread and he gave thanks for it and he blessed it. And then in the presence of his disciples, he broke it. And in the breaking said, this is my body. This is my presence with you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup and again, giving thanks for it, blessing it. He said, this is the cup of my blood. This is my presence with you. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's a new covenant. Take and drink from it. And my brothers and sisters, when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup, we enter into the presence of God in Christ. And we don't just stay at this table. We don't just remember that God is with us. As Paul writes, we proclaim it. We carry God's presence out to those who do not know, who have not heard. So I invite you, if you're struggling, I invite you, if you just want to be reminded, I invite you wherever you are to not be distant from this God, but to come to this table and experience the presence of God in Christ. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let us come and receive them together. Amen.